Let's pray and we'll get after it. Father God, I pray for this church. I pray for this service. Lord, I pray that you would encourage our hearts this morning. Uh, Open our eyes to see your glory. Open our eyes to see what you are doing in this world, uh, what you are doing around us. Open our eyes to see what you have done. And Lord, give us faith to trust and to, to just be able to see a little bit of a picture of what you are yet going to do. And Lord, I pray that as we look at a vision of that this morning, that you would encourage us and excite us to embrace a lifestyle of growth, growth in our own lives, growth in our church, that we would be able to see your kingdom grow in us and through us and in the world around us. We pray this all in your beautiful name. Amen. All right, we are in Mark chapter 4. So if you have a Bible, you can flip there to start in verse 30, just where Jared read. And we are in the second and final week of our series in Mark called uh, Cultivating Kingdom Growth, in which we're looking at a couple parables that Jesus shares about the kingdom of God, uh, in which he's telling us some important truths about it. And so last week, uh, we looked at this parable that, that really got at the idea that God is growing his kingdom constantly throughout everything in season and out of season that we're doing, that he is always at work, always growing that kingdom. And uh, there's this emphasis that God is constantly working in all seasons. And so now this week, uh, we're talking about another parable about a seed, and this is the parable of the mustard seed. And so I actually, let's see, I have with me some yellow mustard seeds I got from Fresh Time. So I'm going to take a few for myself. And then uh, I wanted to just toss it to you, but I'm just paranoid it's going to break open. So we'll just give it to you and try not to spill those everywhere. And you can just take out a couple, pass them around, and we'll see if we can't have enough for everyone to get one. And uh, do your best not to lose it, and we'll come back to it. Uh, they are edible, yes, but don't eat all of them. Thank you, Jeremiah. Uh, <laughs> the parable of the mustard seed. So you can look at it. Uh, do your best not to lose it. So this is, uh, this, this is a parable, and parables generally tell one key idea, one key point. So not like an allegory where uh, each part of it is representing something or parallel to something in, in real life, but rather we're asking what's the key idea here. And the big idea in this parable is that God's kingdom starts much smaller than we would expect and yet grows to be much larger than we could imagine. And that's the idea that Jesus is sharing Uh, with his disciples here, this picture of miraculous growth to shape our vision of God's kingdom in our lives and the church. And so in that tiny seed, and those are going around, in that tiny seed is the DNA for a plant that could grow to be much, much, much larger than what it is. And that's how Jesus wants us to look at his kingdom and to look at the world around us. And so uh, my hope for the sermon this morning and what I think this passage is here for us today is for is to encourage us to live and to labor towards miraculous spiritual growth in ourselves, our lives, and in this church and in the community around us. So we're going to do that by first looking at this parable and how Jesus is using it, and then we'll move on to apply the vision of this parable to a few different parts of our Christian lives. So first, let's get going how Jesus is using this parable. Verse 30, And he said, with what can we compare the kingdom of God? Or what parable shall we use for it? So Jesus is looking to communicate something important about the kingdom of God. And the question is, what? What is he going to use? Uh, so first, what is the kingdom of God? Well, we got into this a bit last week, but the kingdom of God is, put simply, God's rule and reign on earth. Where on earth is God sovereign? Is he Lord? Is he rule and reign? And there's this one sense in which God is sovereign over everything, and yet, in the other sense... Uh, sin, rebellion against God, has entered the world through Adam and Eve and spread like a virus throughout the entire world over all of human history. 
And so what you have is the world filled with people who are living in rebellion against God, not seeking to honor God, not seeking to love God, and not seeking to live as God has made us to live. And instead, we're living under our own, own ways, our own agendas, whatever it is that we want, not with God as sovereign in our lives. And that's led to a lot of brokenness and evil in the world because to rebel against God is evil. It's wrong. And it leads us to dark places because everything that is good comes from God. And so what God has done is invaded this world with his kingdom again through Jesus. And so you see Jesus' ministry in the early stages as an invasion into a dark world. And he's going and he's casting out demons and he's healing people with miraculous healing powers. And he's uh, calling out and rebuking a lot of corruption in, in, in Israel that he's seeing and in, in the religion that he's seeing there. And he's saying, that's not how it's supposed to be. This is how it's supposed to be. And he's starting this invasion to take back the world, uh, leading to a world with God dwelling with us, leading to a world with no more addictions, no more poverty, no more sickness, no more selfishness, no more sadness or hate or lust or pride or fear or death. I think the jury's still out on spiders. We'll see. I'm personally, I don't see it. You can make your case, but I just tell you to Google Australia spiders, and I think you'll agree with me. So the question is, what illustration is Jesus going to use for this kingdom of what God is doing in this world? What illustration would he use to encourage, to motivate, to hype up his disciples to go out? And so last week, the, par- the illustration was a seed, and I think if we're honest, it was just a little underwhelming. Amen? No? I think we can be honest. It's okay. Like, it, the seed, it was like, all right, I get it, but... Maybe, okay, I got, he made his point, so now he's going to move on to something greater, like a mountain, or thunder, or a hurricane, or a tidal wave. So what does he say? What is this grand illustration for the kingdom that we're waiting for? Verse 31, he says, It is like a grain of mustard seed, which, when sown on the ground, is the smallest of all the seeds on earth. Great. So we didn't go bigger, we went smaller. Somehow we went smaller from a seed to a really small seed. So if I was one of the disciples here, I'm just being honest. I'd be like, come on already, Jesus. We need, we need a good illustration. Enough with the seeds. This isn't doing it for me. I'm trying to get hyped up. I want to like, be part of your kingdom. I want to fight for you. I want to uh, see your love take over the world. I, I want to get that to, I just want to see you win. What is it with the seeds? I mean, think about it. Imagine if Jesus was a halftime coach, uh, or sorry, a football coach at halftime, and, and he was giving a halftime speech, and he was like, all right, guys, this seed, this team, sorry, this team is like, a grain of mustard seed, and it, it's, gonna, when it's the smallest of all the seeds on the earth, and when it's sown in the ground, when it takes root, it's going to grow, not fast, slow. And I'd just be like, what, what am I supposed to do with this? How, are, how is this going to help us go on and to fight evil? And so uh, this is, this is the, the illustration that he's chosen, so we're going to roll with it and see what kind of point is Jesus trying to make here. Uh, before we move on, if any of you are hung up on this, I guess, I guess now just every person who preaches on this passage has to mention this. The mustard seed, no, it's not the smallest seed. It's very small. You can see it. Maybe you can see it right here. Maybe not. But it's very small. But it is not the smallest seed. Maybe it's like an orchid seed or something. I don't know. I spent five seconds Googling that. So don't take it with a grain of salt. But uh, it's not the smallest seed. But uh, Jesus... Ex- calls it the small seed on earth because he's talking about uh, gardening and agriculture and, and growing plants. And so for all of the th- seeds that they were using at the time, it was the small seed then. But he's not writing a textbook on agriculture or botany or biology. Uh, and so can we just move past that, please? I, I just, I feel like this is now somebody complained and now every preacher who preaches on this has to mention this. So I'm moving on. 
Uh, so although it's not what you'd expect for an illustration of God's kingdom, it's not inaccurate, which is to say that I think it is pretty accurate when you think about it. God has come to earth, right? Boots on the ground. The invasion has begun. How? Where are the beaches of Normandy of God's invasion plan for this broken world? And it's in Bethlehem. It's in the person of Jesus who comes as a baby. So you're, if you're thinking, all right, if you're like the angels, like, God, what's going to happen? How are we going to invade this world? What are we going to do? It's like, you're going to come. Is he going to come and be like, all right, I'm going to bring all the angels with me. Gabriel, you take these guys west. Michael, you take these guys east. The rest of you guys with me on it. We're going to be done with this in a day. Like, that's what I would expect. But no, instead, all we get is one baby. It's like, wow. If, if the measure of the strength of an army was like the size and the number and the training of all the troops, this is literally the weakest, smallest possible army you could have. It's like a grain of mustard seed. I don't, can you guys see this? I'm just going to keep picking these up. Uh, <laughs> and so that's how God has chosen to begin his invasion, with humility, with patience, above all with vulnerability, which is just baffling. That Herod could almost, in his efforts to kill this future king of Israel, could almost have snuffed out God's invasion plan. God's kingdom enters the world in humility and it takes root in weakness. And so Jesus continues. He says, It is like a grain of mustard seed which when sown on the ground is the smallest of all the seeds on earth. Yet when it is sown, it grows up and becomes larger than all the garden plants and puts out large branches so that the birds of the air can make nests in its shade. So I spent more time on this and it seems like there's some consensus around the mustard plants that they're talking about at that time, in that place, uh, grow up to be as tall as 12 feet tall, right? And so it's not, we're not talking about necessarily a huge tree, I don't think, but, but of all the garden plants he's talking about, this plant, it's, it's the smallest seed, and it grows up to be the tallest plant by far. Uh, and so this isn't an allegory where each part has a direct parallel, so we're not looking at this and asking, all right, what are the birds? I think the birds are this, I think the birds are that. I think you can come up with some true statements, but I don't think that's the point of the parable. I think instead, if anything... Uh, we can simply observe how the presence of the birds in the story serves to emphasize just the, the difference, the disparity between the final state and the small state in which this kingdom began. And I think this little seed, when you think about it, that this little seed, I missed one, here we go, can grow up to be over 12 feet tall. Like, think about that. Like, where does all that plant come from? Like, is this like one of those like Harry Potter bags that like you open it up and it just keeps going? Like, I don't think so. How, how does this little seed grow up to be 12 feet tall? That's just insane. That's crazy, right? And I, I, I measured the black mustard seeds in, in Israel, or I, I looked it up, or like the same size as these ones. So you can, even though this is yellow mustard, you can, you know, whatever. It's, it's similar. Um, that's just crazy to think about. That, I believe, is a miracle. And it's a miracle that's as old as seeds, as old as mustard seeds anyway. And I think it's a miracle that we've grown callous to. Like, do you, do you ever really just stop and think about that? Like, what if you had never seen a seed before? What if I took one of these and, and went to somebody who'd never seen a seed or a plant in their life? This is very hypothetical, I know, but still. And then you planted this in the ground and you said, this, this thing right here, this is going to be huge. This is going to be like 12 feet. They'd be like, what are you, you're crazy. What are you talking about? Look at how little this is. There's no possible way. Where is all that going to come from? And so when you plant a seed like that, I think it's this amazing miracle that, that just how the smallest of seeds can, can grow to be so 
huge. And so through this, Jesus is giving a vision for his disciples to encourage them to understand that God is going to grow his kingdom in such a way and to such a magnitude that anyone who looks at it could only say, God did that. Amen? God did that. It would start smaller than any disciple would want and grow larger than any would dream. And the difference between the two would be so great to show that only God could build and preserve such a kingdom. And there's a reason that we are part of that kingdom today and we're still talking about it 2,000 years later, 6,000 miles away. Google Maps. So what do we do with that vision? Well, generally when I think about the kingdom of God, I break it down into two general categories. I think about the kingdom of God inwardly and outwardly. Inwardly, that the kingdom of God is in each heart of every Christian, that he is uh, giving us a new heart and transforming us and, and working and changing us from the inside so that we are growing to become more and more like Christ. So you can think about that like, holiness or righteousness or character. And then on the other hand, it's also outward, right? It's that it's spreading to more and more people throughout the earth so that we're becoming more like Christ inwardly and also that the kingdom of God is spreading outwardly across the world. And so what do we do with that vision? Well, God, is, it's not just happening, right? And we made that point last week. God is, it's not, this isn't just randomly like happening, that God is actually working through people like you and me to build his kingdom. And by giving this parable, Jesus is inviting us into that vision, to be part of that vision for the growth of his kingdom, and that we would be able to understand that his kingdom is going to be something beyond anything that we could imagine or expect. He's going to grow his kingdom in you and through you in such a way and to such a magnitude that you will only be able to look back and say, God did that. And so he's given this to us that this would lead, lead us to live and labor with an eager anticipation and an optimism, a divine uh, miraculous, supernatural optimism for the next benchmark in God's miraculous kingdom growth. So that's the vision here, right? And we're going to move on to apply that in a minute, but I just want us to, to sit here for a second and just understand that's what I think this parable is calling us to. It's not some coincidence that, that this parable uh, is, is here and that uh, God's kingdom continuing to grow like it has, that like we just say, okay, well, that's what he meant for the disciples at the time. But like, I think this continues to preach to the church today that we would have an optimism for how God can be growing his kingdom and that it's got so much further to go than any of us would even dare to imagine. And that's not to be like a demoralizing thing, like, oh my goodness, we have so much further to go, but an encouraging thing that if, 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 uh, if this is my life now, like imagine what God has in store for me. Amen? And so I'm going to take the rest of the time to apply this vision to a few components of our faith and to the church. And so the first one is holiness, right? What do I mean by holiness? Well, Holy means to be set apart, and in the Bible when we're talking about holiness, we're talking about being set apart from sin and wickedness and all of the corruption of sin. And so God is perfectly holy because he is not at all corrupted or tainted by sin. And then none of us are perfectly holy because we all have experienced and felt the taint, the corruption, and touch of sin in our lives. And so the, the idea of holiness in, in the Christian life follows a process that's similar like that. Like it starts small, like a grain of mustard seed, and yet as God works in us and transforms us, we become perfectly holy. And to us, that's going to seem like something we can't even imagine because we just haven't seen something like that in our lives. Uh, but it starts with little to no awareness of sin. And that's kind of where we start is that we're not at all set apart from sin and we're, 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 we're so deep in it like a fish in water, it's like we're not even aware of it. I've never asked a fish. I don't know if they're aware that they're in water or not, but I've just heard it. Uh, so this isn't to say that someone who doesn't know God 
can't seem to be a decent person, right? When you're fully just swimming in sin, like, it, you could still outwardly seem like a pretty decent person. You could still be a law-abiding citizen. You could still uh, serve on the weekends and, 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 and uh, donate money to things. Uh, I don't think that's the point here. The point is that are you living life as God intended you to live? Are, and so when we, when we read the Bible, the more we understand God's standard for what it really means to be good, and we look at the life of Christ, we see that it is so much higher than anything that anybody has. The standard of, of just selfless love and sacrifice and service to just lay your life down for everyone around you. That's the sort of life that God is calling us to. But most people who don't know Jesus, they either don't know that standard or, or we use some warped version of that standard to measure ourselves. Like, if I'm like, I'd be like, okay, well, that person's having an affair, so they're a bad person. But I'm, over, I'm okay over here just being greedy with all my money and just keeping on holding on to that. And we can just kind of select the things that aren't really an issue for us uh, to kind of warp God's standard to somehow make us a good person. And I, I realized this when I was a lot younger, but everyone is like just above the bar for a good person for whatever like their standard is. I just think that's kind of funny. Like the standard is always right below me that I'm, I'm just a little bit, I'm kind of good. And so that's, that's kind of like where it starts. And then as someone comes to faith in God and as the Holy Spirit comes into your life, he convicts you of sin and starts to show you more and more where your life needs to change. And so that brings an awareness of sin in you. And, and so uh, th- this can look different for different people, but basically you still, even though you have an awareness of sin and you might start to repent from some of it, you still, there's still a love for sin there. And there's still this, you might say, okay, God's showing me this. All right, God, I'll change here. I'll change there. But oh, don't, don't touch that part of my life. I don't, I don't want to change in that area yet. I'm not ready. Or, or maybe, we'll just, like, maybe we'll just wait on that one for a little bit. And, and so we just kind of hang out there, and you might not feel like you love a certain sin, but as time goes on, it just never really goes anywhere. It's just kind of always just sitting in that part of your life, just festering. You're never really addressing it. And so what, what we can do is, is when we have certain sins that we really love, even if we don't think we love them, and we let them hang around in our life, we can start to redefine them and we can start to call them a struggle. Like, like I could say, like, lust is my struggle or pride is my struggle. And this is just, this is just a struggle that I have. And yeah, I know it's wrong and I'm, I'm working to beat it, right? And I think there's some truth that, you know, we have, we're made different. We have different things that are harder for us. But when we start to call our sin, oh, well, it's just my struggle, we start to make it part of our identity. And the moment we start to make it part of our identity, it's like we're making a little, a little home for it in our heart. Like it's like if, if, my, if I had like a, a dresser in my heart, it's like I would leave a drawer and that would be for that sin. Like I'm, I'm giving it its own little bedroom there. It can, it can just make its home in my heart and just stay there uh, because that's where I want it to be. And so then this third stage comes when the Holy Spirit begins to open our eyes, not just to have an awareness of sin, but also to see sin more and more for what it is. And this, this happens, I think, when you're really, truly in Christ and you're in community with other Christians, you start to, over time, you start to see the wickedness of sin for what it is and what before might have looked like something that was appealing, uh, that says, oh, this will be good for me, I want this. Instead, you start to see it for the monster that it truly is. And so I have this, uh, and so in that you can, yeah, you can discover the true nature of sin. And so I have this, uh, this story that I think illustrates this well, and it's when I was, uh, the summer after my freshman year in college. And I'm not going to say exactly when, what year that was because some of you will judge me for being too old and the others will judge me for being too young. So we're just going to say I was 19. It was the summer after my freshman year in college. And a bunch of buddies in mine and our dads, uh, we went on this RV trip 
uh, out west to Yellowstone National Park. We all chipped in and got this RV, and by we all, I mean our dads all chipped in and got us this RV, and we went for like a little over a week uh, to go to some different national parks, and so we're driving through the night to go to Yellowstone, right? And I'm asleep, and I wake up, it's like 6 a.m., and the sun's just risen, and I look out the window, and it's like I'm in a, a different world. It's just beautiful. We've just gotten into the park, and the sun is shining. Everything is covered in dew, and it's, everything is just glittering. It's so beautiful. It's, it's like, wow, this is God's creation. It's so amazing. And I have uh, an old phone at the time that doesn't take great resolution pictures, but I'm just, I'm just snapping away pictures because I'm like, I just got to do something to capture this. And so we're driving along the road, and there's this lake to the right, and there's like mountains and stuff in the background. There's this lake to the right, and there's this, like, stretch of grass, maybe from, like, maybe a little bit shorter from here to the back of the rows back there, right, between the road and the lake. So not, not a ton, but just a little bit. And there's two bison that are just walking along the lake. Just, it's 6 a.m., you know, they're sleepy too. They're just walking along, and we're just driving along slowly, and we're like, wow, this is so beautiful. The first bison that we see in Yellowstone. So sure enough, we pull off to the side, and we kind of pull up, and we pass them. So they're kind of like right there, and we're trying to take pictures, but they've gotten kind of behind us now. And so I'm like, man, this is no good. We need to get better pictures. So I get out, right? And so I get out, and I come back here, and I walk back up the road. And so I'm kind of over here in the grass, and I'm just taking pictures as they're just walking along there by the lake being over there. And I'm just down here. I'm crouching, and I'm taking pictures. And it's, it's just beautiful. This is just amazing. And so then one of the bison starts to change his path a little bit, and he starts to come just a little bit more towards me. And I'm like, this is so cool. Wow, it's getting even closer. And then sure enough, a couple seconds later, he is coming head on, just walking right towards me, super slowly, super. It's like, okay, this is nice. Just coming. And so this is so cool. He's getting closer. And then the next thing I start to notice is he starts to speed up just a little bit. Like he's, he's walking like this, and then he kind of starts to walk, you know, a little bit faster like this, and he's walking faster, and then he speeds up a little bit more. It's like a good, a good like brisk bison walk, right? He's just kind of coming right up to me. His just head's right there, and I'm like, I'm just like shocked. I'm like, this is so amazing. Wow, God, this is just so cool. Here's this bison. And so it's when he gets, I don't know, maybe two or three yards. Uh, I, this is the last picture I got. I think uh, Tom's can throw it up here. That's the last picture I got. <laughs> and it's right about there that I realized, whoa, okay, wait. This is a huge animal. <laughs> and he's got this massive head with this massive horns. And like, it's like his head's like this big, like in front of me. And I'm like, whoa, okay, wait. And so I, I stand up, I start to back up and he keeps walking faster towards me. And I'm like backing up and now I'm looking around like, oh no, I just realized the danger of the situation I'm in. Where am I going to go? And so a little ways behind me, there's this tree. It's only about maybe this thick. <laughs> There's this little tree, and so I go and I get behind the tree like this, and he comes, and he's right here, right next to me, and I got the tree right here, and I'm like, all right, hey, and he just stops right next to me, and he's just eyeing me right there, and we're just, we just have this moment, me and the bison, where we're just looking at each other, and I'm, I, I could have touched him. I didn't, I didn't know what was going to happen. I look back. Everyone is like just waving at me at the RV like, what are you doing? But they didn't want to like spook him. And so then, and so then he kind of starts and eventually after a, cu- a couple minutes, he moseys on, right? And I'm like, okay. And so I go and I get back in the, in the RV and we take off. And everyone's just like, Rob, you are an idiot. And I was like, yes, I know. And now, then we're the, next, the rest of the day and the next day we're in Yellowstone. And we see those plaques everywhere. Don't get within 50 yards of a bison. They're unpredictable people get gored every single year and I'm just like whoa okay now I'm noticing every single one whereas before I probably wouldn't have given them a second thought because I know the reality of that danger and what that is and that is I think what the Holy Spirit can do in us 
to help us to see our sin differently. It's not some cute little fluffy stuffed animal off in the distance. It is a very, very large, dangerous thing. And it's not something that we want to let get that close to us. Amen? And so that brings us to the, the fourth part, the fourth stage, which is putting sin to death. Uh, and uh, we have to be careful that we don't consider pursuing holiness in this life just some simple exercise that God gives us to do. It's not just like, okay, well, I'm just going to do this, and then he's just going to finish the work when he comes. Because the Bible says that. Like, on the day of Christ, God is going to carry to completion the work that he began in us, right? And he's going he's to finish making us perfectly holy, and so we can have perfect eternity with him. But the time between now and then, it's not like, oh, well, it's just, I don't know, it's just like a coloring page for us to do in the meantime. Like, we might finish it, we might not. It doesn't really matter. Because I think at the end of the day, it's us who puts our sin to death. It's with the help of God, but I believe that it's us. We are the ones who put our sin to death. And so there's not going to be anyone in heaven who wants to have sin still be in their life. Basically, God is going to help us open our eyes to see it for what it is and say, now, will you, help, will you, will you let me help you kill it? Will you, will you let me kill it for you? Will you, will, you, will you accept my help in putting your sin to death? But if we still have that drawer in our, in our dresser that we're saying, I still, I still, not yet, maybe tomorrow, I still want to keep it, we are setting ourselves up for uh, just an absolute mess. And, and it's going to be absolutely terrible, and it's going to hurt all the more when it finally does have to get ripped apart from our life. And so this process, uh, this, this process ends with you being dressed in righteousness. Uh, in the end, it's, it's you who puts your sin to death. And so I want us to catch the vision of this parable and to embrace growth in the area of holiness in our lives to understand that it starts small like one of these little mustard seeds. And, and then it's going to grow over time and, and end with us being perfectly holy. But in the meantime, that we would be encouraged by that vision to apply ourselves to that growth, to embrace in our lives a mentality of growth and holiness. And to say, how, how, right now, how can I be putting sin to death in my life? And so we can think about embracing this vision and, and living for this now, building your life around growth and holiness by, by killing sin. By, you can burn it by bringing it into the light before other Christians. You can suffocate it by giving it no opportunity to exist in your life. You can poison it by saturating your mind with biblical truth around that issue. And I'm sure there's so many more ways. You can slay it with prayer, but you will be better and more loving and more kind and more generous the more that you embrace holiness in your life now, and it will empower you and equip you all the better to be a light and a witness for God uh, to help and love others in this world now. Amen? So that's holiness. Moving right along, the next one is joy. And the growth of joy in the Christian life, it follows a very similar pattern. Uh, when we start, I think when we start out in our faith, and our walk with God, joy is very, very small in our lives. And you might not think that. Like, you might look, I, and to be, clear, to be fair, like, I mean, I look at someone's life who's not a Christian, and some people, they seem pretty happy. They seem like they have a, a good amount of joy. But what Jesus would say is he would look at that in our life, and he would say, man, in you, like the kingdom of heaven, it's like, it's like a grain of mustard seed. Like, that's, that's the joy that you have, I think. It's like, it's like about this big. And he would say, I want it to be 12 feet tall. I want it to be so much more. And I think that the joy that God has in store for you is so much greater than what you have now. And so the joy that, that people have starting out apart from Jesus, it's, it's a fleeting joy at best. It's, it's completely circumstantial. It's, it's, and that's because it's based in things that aren't Jesus. We, we base our joy uh, in, in the things that are going right in our life, the things that we have, the things that we love. And we say, man, if, if I don't have things just right, I can't be happy. I can't have joy in my life. 
And then I want to jump to where this ends, and it ends with this, this perfect joy in Christ where I say, as long, I just want to be with Jesus. As long as I have Jesus, I'm good. And the reality is that, that we can come before and pray to Jesus and experience his love for us and every single moment of our life. Amen? Like as we camp out in his word, rest in the truths of what he said to us, it's this whole life, it's not this perfect fulfillment because we're still going to be with him face to face someday, but at the same time, we can always be looking forward to that day and have a hope that we rest in. And so that's not to say in that final state that there's no room for grief in life. Like if you lose a loved one or if tragedy strikes, like absolutely it's appropriate to grieve and to mourn in those times. But the waves of that type of sadness all break against the foundation of joy that we have in Christ. That that sadness that comes for a minute always dissipates at the end of the day back to the the foundation, the bedrock of joy that we have in Jesus. And so I want to make the point then that I think every single Christian is between those two states, right? Where we've, we've started out, you know, having our joy just in other things that aren't Jesus, saying, I think this is going to make me happy, but there are always, things are always snapping under the weight of our, of our dissatisfied souls. Uh, and, and we're in between that state and this perfect joy in Christ because we've tasted and seen that God is good. And so there's this part of me that, that loves God and is enjoying him. And there's also this part of me that's looking to other things for joy. And I'm going to other places for comfort. And I'm saying, man, this is what I need right now. This is what's going to make me happy. This is what's going to make life better for me. And those things are, they're like leeches. They're like stealing our joy away. I was telling this to a friend of mine recently that uh, it's the season of my life that I most gave myself to whatever pleasure that I wanted, whatever pleasure that I could have, saying I'm not going to hold myself back, whatever, whatever I can get. It was that season that I was also the most dissatisfied and depressed in my life which is just, I think, it, to me it's funny because it's so ironic that you would pursue it more than you could have, anything besides Christ that could give you joy, and you found everything so unlasting, unfulfilling. Because the reality is we were made for God. We were made to have joy in him. We have a God-shaped hole in our heart, like I think Pascal said. And so uh, I just want to make this point that knowing and being in love with Jesus colors everything in our world. The world around you becomes alive with beauty and meaning. It's like falling in love. So imagine you're in high school, right? Maybe some of you don't have to imagine that. But imagine you're in high school, and imagine that you're on this, uh, this field trip uh, to this incredibly boring art museum, all right? Can you, can you picture this, all right? So, and maybe for some of you know art museum is boring. I don't know, right? But it's this incredibly boring museum. It's just, it's a long, tough day, right? And it can go, I want you to imagine that you're just, you're really bored throughout the whole thing, and it's just, you're miserable, you're uncomfortable, maybe you're hungry too, uh, and, and you just can't wait to get home. You got a lot of homework you have to do, but you can't do it. All these things hanging over your head to make this just a really miserable experience. Now, imagine the same trip, but instead, on the bus ride there, either the, the prettiest girl in class or the cutest boy in class just sat down next to you and started flirting with you, right? And now that entire day, is going to go completely differently, right? Like, all of a sudden, everything is just going to be like, whoa, okay, wait. All, every, you're stealing glances constantly with this person. You're, you're looking to be next to each other, to talk to each other, and, and all of a sudden, you're, next thing you know, you're actually looking at art together, art that neither of you would have cared about otherwise, but in this case, you're looking at the art, and, and the guy's just looking at it saying, like, wow, it, it, like, it like speaks to me, you know? And, and, and then the girl is just like, wow, he is... He is so articulate. Wow, it's just, it's just so amazing. And as corny as that, that is to see from the outside, that day just got a whole lot more interesting for both those kids, 
right? And so that, I think, is a picture of what it is, what happens to your life when you know and understand and experience God's love for you. That all of a sudden, every single little detail starts to come alive with meaning and joy because you are living in the relationship that you were made to be in. And if we can recognize that about corny high school romances and flings, how much more can we recognize that the love of God will color everything in our lives? Amen? Like, I hope that you guys can see that, and I hope that that's something that we can think about when we are looking for joy, when we're in the middle of the week, and you're like, man, I just am feeling low. I just need some, some hope, some, some love, something that we could know and understand that God in that moment is looking on you and loving you and longing for you to be in relationship with him. And so I want to wrap this point up by just saying, when you apply the vision of this parable to joy, it's like Jesus is saying, I have so much more joy in store for you. So don't settle for anything less than a life that is overflowing with joy in Christ. And what I mean by that is you should never come to a point where you think this is it. This is what joy is. This is what the Christian life is. Because that's just not true. There is more. There is so much more. The kingdom of heaven is like a grain of mustard seed. It's so, so small. I'm, I'm losing them a little bit each time I pick them up. Uh, it's like this grain of mustard seed that is so small, and yet you've got so much more to grow. The final state is so much greater than where you begin. And we must, as Christians, we must embrace a growth mentality in our joy to let that drive us to seek out a relationship with God more and more. There's always more to know about him. There's always more to learn about him that is going to give you more joy. So you could uh, seek it out. If you don't have that joy, seek it out. Get it. Find the most joyful person in this church that you can find and say, help me. Help me to have joy like you. Sorry, JT. I know it's going to be, you're going to get a lot of calls. All right. The, the, the next one, and this is the, the third and final one I want to do, and then we'll, we'll start to wrap up, is faith. Uh, and so we'll move through this one. So faith, similar picture, right? It starts out small as children of, of a world that has fallen away from God. Our natural tendency is doubt. To, we we kind of start out all living in this cloud of doubt, right? And we don't really have the, we don't even maybe have a sense of God or, or we don't know very much about who he actually is. And we certainly don't see him moving his kingdom forward in, in extravagant tidal waves or, or mountain-type illustrations, uh, but instead it's the slow and gradual growth. And so our natural tendency is to doubt his power and his willingness to grow his kingdom in this miraculously massive way. And we might not think that we see that kind of doubt in our lives or that we saw that kind of doubt in our lives, but when I'm talking about doubt and belief, I'm not talking about what you would put on paper, right? Like, plenty of people would put on paper like, yeah, I think God is all-powerful. I think, uh, you know, plenty of Christians would say, yeah, I think he, he can do miracles. I think he's willing to do miracles. I think he moves in miraculous ways. That's not, I'm not talking about what you would answer on a quiz. I'm talking about your belief, how do you, what do you, what sort of beliefs, what sort of ideas do you base your life on? And when you look at how someone is living their life, that's how you can tell what they believe. And so looking at your life, I want you to ask, what am I believing? What do I believe as I look at my life? What am I believing about God's power and willingness to move in this community? What am I believing about God's power and willingness to move miraculously in my own heart? What does your lifestyle say you believe? So, that seed grows, and as the Holy Spirit opens our eyes to God's power and presence in the world, he leads us to live more and more of our lives by faith, trusting God with our joy, our finances, our free time, our families, and so on. And this ends with a total faith, a complete faith in God, unwavering, unshakable. We might not be able to see. It might look like all hope is lost, and yet we know that God is there, and he is sovereign, 
and he's working. And, and the way I would illustrate this is I remember when I was just old enough to sit in the passenger seat in a car, uh, and my dad was driving. It was just him and me in the car, and my dad decides he's going to mess with me. And so he comes up to a red light at this busy intersection uh, with cars going, and he intentionally hits the, brake, hits the brakes like very late. So we're coming up fast, 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 and all of a sudden he stops. And my dad, he's trying to get me to like, I don't know, freak out or say something because maybe I just didn't do that a lot as a kid. I don't know if that's easy to see or not. But anyway, so he looks over at me and he is absolutely astonished. Not only that, 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 I, that I, not only did I not say anything, but I didn't even flinch, right? So eight-year-old Rob was a thug is what I'm trying to say. Like, did not even flinch, right? And he was like, why didn't you flinch? Why aren't you scared? And I like, I had to think about it. I was like, why, why wasn't I scared? And I was like, oh, I've never had a reason to doubt my dad's driving. Like, and so I didn't there either. Like, as a kid, I always got to where I was going safely. I was always, you know, arrived without any incidents at all. So I, I never had any reason to doubt that whatsoever. And I didn't, I didn't even think twice about doubting it then. And, you know, for better or for worse, I don't know if that faith was misplaced or not. I'd say, you know, I'm still here, so I, I trust my dad. I think he was a good driver, even if he did maybe bend the law a little bit sometimes. But he always seemed to know what he was doing. So uh, I, say, I say that to say that that's the sort of faith that God is calling us to. Jesus is calling us to a radical faith. I'm guessing he probably didn't mess with his disciples like that. Although, I don't know, I mean, think about Peter walking out on the water to him in the middle of a storm. And then Peter takes his eyes off of Jesus and he starts to sink. Like, Jesus is in control there, right? Like, that's the whole point. Jesus is sovereign. He's in control. So he's letting Peter sink, you know? And he's, he's the one who's, you know, Peter's life is in his hands. If Peter can't walk on that water, he's definitely going to drown in that storm. So I, I don't know. Maybe there are some similarities there. But uh, <laughs> Jesus did stuff like this to call his disciples to radical faith in him because he was trying to impress upon their hearts that God is sovereign, and that because our natural tendency is to doubt, we are always, always going to be falling short of that faith. I don't think there's ever a person that had too much faith in God in all of human history. It's, it's rather, I think, it's a question of what's your faith that what God is going to do? Like, I could say I have faith that God is going to give me a million dollars, but that maybe that's not what God's will is and what he's planning to do. But I don't think there's ever someone who's had too much faith in what God is actually looking to do in the world. And so there's this, there's, this, uh, there's this passage in Matthew 17 where Jesus' disciples, they try to cast this demon out from this kid because Jesus had empowered them to do that, and, and they fail, right? They're not able to do it. So the Jesus goes, and he finds the kid, and he just does it instantly. And so then they come to him, and they're like, Jesus, why weren't we able to cast it out, right? And, and you know what he says? He says, because he didn't have faith, because he didn't believe it would work. You did not have enough faith. He doesn't say, like, you did it wrong or whatever. He's like, you, you, you do not have enough faith in, 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 in God who, who drives out demons. And so maybe they wouldn't have put that on paper. Maybe they wouldn't have said, said I don't think that this is actually going to work. But when you actually looked at their lifestyle, when you actually looked at how they were living and how they were acting, you could tell that they went in it thinking that they were going to fail. That belief had not permeated their lives. And so Jesus said to them, and, and he, he, he used a, a similar illustration. He said, if you have this much faith, this much faith, you'll be able to say to this mountain, move from here to there and it'll move. And that's, 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 a, that's a, an illustration. He's not saying we're actually going to move mountains. To say that when we set our mind to follow the will of God, to do what he is looking to do to advance his kingdom in this world, that if we have just this much faith, 
he will move for miraculous growth in his kingdom. Amen? This much faith. The point isn't to experiment and move mountains. The point is to show that we are called to have radical faith in carrying out God's will. Jesus is showing us that we are prone to doubt an all-powerful God, and he keeps nudging us to participate in helping to grow his kingdom, but we consistently aim too low in our faith. And he gives the vision of the parable in Mark to help his disciples see that his kingdom is not done growing, that it's got 12 more feet, 12 more, I don't know, whatever units of measurement to, to go uh, to expand this kingdom all over the world and to uh, Christ-likeness in every member of the church. It has a long, long way to go. And so the last way I want to apply this vision is with this general look at the growth of the church, and, and then we'll be done. Uh, the general, a general look at the growth of the church throughout the world. And so I think for me the key word here is potential. Uh, the, there's more potential for growth in the kingdom of God in the world now than ever. And when I say potential, I'm talking about population, really, because we see how uh, population, ha- population of the world has exploded over the last century. That there are, right now, there are 140 million births annually, right? So how many people do you think the church can win to Christ in a year? Because that's keeping pace, is if we can do 140 million a year, uh, the projected world population of, is, uh, is just over 20 billion people by the end of the century. And that's making some big assumptions about does the fertility rate, everything, if everything stays constant, that's where it's headed. That's, we're at like what, almost 8 billion now. That's a lot of people. And so when we think about uh, the growth of God's kingdom in the world, we generally think about percentage of the world. Like what percentage of the world is, you know, knows God. And I think that's a good way to think about it. Like, that's good. I would not discourage that at all. This morning, I want us to look at a different number. I want us to think about the total number of Christians of all time and how that number is growing. Because the reality is that when Christ comes back and establishes kingdom on earth, there's going to be a resurrection. And everyone who is a Christian who placed their faith in Christ of all time is going to come and be part of that kingdom. How is that number growing? And that number is growing a lot. And it's growing faster and faster and faster as the population of the world is taking off and more and more people are becoming Christians and coming to be part of the church. That number is taking off. And I think a, a cool thing that I, I think about is how the picture of the church in, in Revelation is this very diverse crowd. It's this very diverse thing. And you think about what colors has the church been over human history. And, and, but then you also look about what parts of the world are most densely populated. And so what I'm hopeful and eager for is to see just the movement of the church and of, of the gospel to take off and explode in parts of the world that are very unreached. And I think that is going to happen. I'm excited to see what God is going to do even in the next decade, even in the next 20, 30 years, to see how the gospel could spread in places like India and all the more in China and, and other parts of, of uh, the Middle East and South Asia and Southeast Asia and, and all of those places to see in uh, Russia what God is going to do uh, throughout the world to be, to be bringing uh, more and more people to be part of that global, capital C, all-time church, uh, and that being the movement that he's going to have. And so the key word here, though, is potential. I don't see any room for a coincidence here. The exploding potential for evangelism and the timeless vision of this parable of the miraculous growth of God's kingdom come together. And together, it's like they're screaming, go, spread the good news of the gospel. Use the potential. Capitalize on the potential that God is giving you now. There are more people than ever, more opportunities than ever for us to bring the love of Christ to people who do not know it. You will never, ever, in all of eternity, have a chance to do this again. 
So why not do it now? Why not give your life now to do that more and more? And as we embrace a mindset, a mentality of growth in our lives to say, God, make me more holy. Make me more joyful. God, give me more faith so that I could be more equipped to be a light and a witness to you in this world. And that I could be someone that you could use to be building your mustard seed of a kingdom into this 12-foot tall plant that's taller than all the other garden plants. And that I could see that, that level of growth, that level of, of what you're doing happening and moving through my life. It's like saying, go, make disciples of Jesus. Make disciples who make disciples. Plant churches of these disciples that will likewise plant more churches. See what grows out of faith the size of a mustard seed once it takes root in someone. And I think one of the best parts of this is how the inward and outward expressions of kingdom growth work together. That, that what I just said about how God works in me can, can help to expand the kingdom and how as God expands the kingdom, I think it helps motivate us to want to be more and more a part of that kingdom and experience life in him. And so we can just ask ourselves, who can you share the gospel with this week? Who can you invite to church this week? Who can you introduce yourself to this week? Who can you get to know better this week? I don't want any of this to sound like work or like shame, or anything like that. I want you to see your life and the faith that you have like this, and to understand that God has so much further for you to go, so much more in store for you, and that there is so much more joy there. And that's a good thing. That's something to be celebrated. Amen? So if you haven't lost it, if you still have one of these seeds, why don't you pull it out and take it? Take another second. Appreciate how small it is. In this seed, in this tiny little seed, is the DNA for a plant that is many, many thousands of times its size. And likewise, in you is the DNA to make you into a person that you would hardly recognize with holiness and joy and, and faith and so many other things that we didn't even have time for this morning. Many, many thousands of times its size. And within this church is the DNA to grow into a church both much larger and far more active than any of us would probably dare to imagine right now. It's here. It's in this parable. It's in this seed. Reproducing disciples, planting churches to capitalize on the potential. So my question for us to wrestle with this week is, will we, in faith, embrace a mentality of growth in our lives? Not live in shame about where we are or where we've been, but just ask God, whatever's next, I want it. And help me to step into it and give me faith and courage to go about it. Amen? Let's pray. Father God, I just want to thank you for your love. Lord, I pray for anyone this morning who's feeling just discouraged, who's in a tough place. Lord, I pray that you would just encourage them by this. They wouldn't see this as work. They wouldn't see this as, as anything overwhelming, Lord, but instead that they would just be able to know and trust and get a picture that you have more in store for them. That there is so much more, that there's going to be so much joy and beauty and love one day when we are all together in your kingdom. Lord, help us to see that. Help us to live for that. And Lord, I just pray that we would get excited about how you are going to grow us in this church around us. Pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.